thank you so much. I want to say thank you, Pastor, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it is a privilege uh, to be speaking to you today. I want to thank the committee uh, for this invitation. Now, I know, and you might not know, that there were female Bible scholars that you asked to come, and they were not able to make this date. And so I know that there were people, I'll be honest with you, I would much rather hear than me uh, that we're going to be behind this pulpit and could not make it. But you wanted to begin this week uh, with a biblical and theological talk on women in ministry. And I want to be clear today, I'm not here to speak about a woman's experience. I'm not here to speak just in support of women. I'm here to speak on behalf of Scripture in support of women. And that's what I want to speak about today. I'm also not just speaking about rights. Too many times we get lost up, and again, I'm, I'm a huge believer in rights. If you've taken my God and Humanity class, you know how much I love rights. But I'm not here just to talk about rights, because when we talk about women in ministry, what we're really talking about is our shared responsibility. That God has given us men and women a shared responsibility to his church, a shared responsibility to his kingdom, and that if we don't get that right, we start to lose out on some of the people who have been called to be responsible. Now, there's a need for this conversation, even in Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism is historically known for its support in women in ministry. Now, many of you here know my mom. Uh, know the kind of minister that she is. But from the beginning, the Pentecostal movement has had women in ministry. If you look at the first pastoral team from the Azusa Street Revival, what you find is half of that team is made up of women, women who were in charge, uh, women who were in charge of the state, women who were in charge of missions, women who were in charge of a lot, actually. It's one reason why it succeeded. Uh, there were women who were Pentecostal before the Pentecostal movement, like Mariah Woodworth Etter. And if you say to her, as this great 19th century evangelist, when should you become Pentecostal? Her answer would be, I didn't become Pentecostal. Pentecostalism just caught up with me. I was already doing this. Uh, great leaders, even those who are controversial, like Amy Simple McPherson, who is the first woman in this country to actually be given a license to operate a radio station because she wanted to put the gospel on the airwaves. Or someone you might not have heard of, Elder Lucy Smith, uh, one of the greatest healing evangelists and Pentecostal leaders in America. She was pastor of probably the first Pentecostal megachurch in this country. When she died in Chicago, 60,000 people showed up to her funeral. To this day, I don't think Chicago has ever seen a funeral that's as large as the funeral of Lucy Smith. This is the beginning of Pentecostalism. Yet even in Pentecostalism, women in leadership is sometimes a sticking point, where our practice doesn't match our theology, and sometimes our theology just doesn't match itself. I was pastor of a church in Los Angeles that was founded in 1930. We had a constitution and bylaws that was written in 1930. And according to the Constitution and bylaws, women were not allowed to serve on the board. And this is a Pentecostal church. And I remember going to, at the time, our lead pastor and saying, okay, I didn't know this. I know now that women don't come up in our board meetings because they're not allowed. 
So let's change it. And finally, I was allowed to go to our church board. Now, here's the awkwardness. Can I give you the awkwardness for a minute? Some of the members of our church board, their grandparents founded the church. So when I'm telling them our constitution and bylaws need to change, I'm not just telling them it needs to change. I'm telling them their grandparents were wrong. That's part of the awkwardness with this conversation, is you're telling people the tradition that they have grown up with has to be corrected. And I said to them, here's why the pastor said to me, I'll give you 15 minutes with the board. I said, that would be great. Two hours later, our conversation took off. The board finally agreed. They didn't agree with me, but they agreed there was enough there for us to bring it to the church. So on a Sunday morning, I was given the whole service. I addressed the church. I laid out the argument, the reason. A month later, we're going to have our business meeting. We're going to vote to change this. Here's why. Here's what the Bible says. And if you're still not convinced, I will be here every Wednesday night for 90 minutes for the rest of the month. And we will have town hall meetings. And for the rest of the month, on a Wednesday night, I showed up. And for 30 minutes, I went over the same thing again. Then for an hour, you can ask me anything you want. Some people never came. Some people came once. Some people came every single time because I just thought up of a new question. And I want to ask you about this. So what happened? Well, the church, when I first announced this on a Sunday morning, the church gave me a standing ovation. Half of them. Half of them did not. And I'm like, okay, here's where the split is. Wednesday night, the other half came. And they asked, and they asked, and they asked. And finally, when it comes to the Sunday night where we have our business meeting, the group that had decided, I just can't get over that this tradition has been wrong, got smaller and smaller, until finally it was just a handful of people who, to their credit, decided not to vote so the vote could be unanimous. And that night, the church voted to change our bylaws to allow women to serve on the board. And that same night, we elected our first woman on the board. Because as soon as we changed it, everyone in the church said, I know who I want on the board. It's Dora. Dora needs to be on that board. And she was amazing. She eventually becomes one of our city council women. She was amazing. But that was an issue. Recently, a local pastor has asked me to meet with two women on his staff. Because he says... They don't know how to answer these questions about women in ministry. Can you meet with us? They're not sure. I heard just last week there was a meeting of women ministers in the Assemblies of God. At that meeting, they read the Assemblies of God's official position on women in ministry, which is to say we support it, and here's why. And that women in the meeting got emotional. And you're like, why are you emotional? You already knew this. But to hear it again, and to know that my ministry is received, that means something. So why? Why do Pentecostals support women in ministry? Well, if you were to ask me, and again, many times the question is this, tell me what scriptures. Tell me what scriptures support the idea of women in ministry. My flippant response is always, well, all of them. But in Pentecostalism, there were two that were very important for Pentecostals that clearly say women can be empowered for ministry. The first comes from the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 16 through 18. That's actually quoting Joel 2, verse 28 through 29. When the Spirit is poured out on those days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. 
I will pour out my spirit on your men and your women, and they will prophesy. For Pentecostals, this was the sign of Pentecost. Women are going to prophesy. They're going to speak authoritatively. And let me say this, there's no more authoritative speech than prophecy. Because there's no more authority than when someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. The Bible clearly says, women empowered by the Spirit will speak authoritatively on behalf of God. They will prophesy. Another powerful verse for Pentecostals, 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the Spirit decides who receives a gift. To each of us have been given a gift of the Spirit, to some prophecy, to some tongues, to some interpretation, some faith, some healing, some miracles, but it is as the Spirit determines. What's clear there is Paul does not offer any gender test for whether or not someone can receive a certain gift of the Spirit. Paul does not say, these are the gifts for men and these are the gifts for women. No. The only thing that determines your gifting is the choice of the Holy Spirit. So now, what do we do with those passages of Scripture, even in the same book, that seem to suggest otherwise? Now, here's what's important. When it comes to the meaning of any Scripture, you always have to ask yourself three questions. And these are the three questions. By the way, is it okay if I just kind of lecture today? Good. There will not be a quiz over this. Uh, there might be a test, but that test will come from God, not from me. And so you're just going to have to go with that. Here's the three questions that you have to ask yourself when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Number one, what's the best translation? And I don't just mean here what's the best version. What I mean is, is that no translation from Greek and Hebrew to English is ever word for word. There's always multiple words that can carry different kinds of meaning. Every translator has to make an interpretation. I'll give you an example of this later on, of how this passage could be interpreted this. This passage could also be interpreted this way. Both of them work. So what's your theology that determines which interpretation is best? That's the second question. What's the best interpretation? How many have ever heard the question, what's the three most important things in real estate? What's the answer? Location, location, location. How many have heard that? If you haven't, I just gave you a real estate lesson. Three most important things in real estate. Location, location, location. Three most important things in interpretation. Location, location, location. Just in biblical interpretation, we don't call it location, we call it context. But where does this passage fit within the context of the passage it's in? Where does this passage fit in the context of the book it's in? Where does this fit in the context of the Bible as a whole? Context, context, context. That's what helps determine translation. And then finally, what's the best translation? What's the best interpretation? What's the best application? How do we apply this? Is it telling us something that is local, through which there's a deeper universal principle? Is what it's saying itself universal and applies to the whole church? And if it does, how does that look in a different culture? What's the best application? So what's the best translation? What's the best interpretation? What's the best application? I'm going to look at two passages of Scripture in light of these questions. And I'm going to begin, I'm going to always look with the NIV, I've not chosen the NIV because it's the best translation. I've chosen it because it's the most common. So let's begin with the NIV, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 through 35. 
And this translation simply says, and I'll paraphrase, women must be silent in the church for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak. Now, if we took this passage in the way I just paraphrased it, you don't understand that there's not one church that follows this. Because women are allowed to greet each other in church. Women are allowed to pray in church. Women are allowed to sing in church. Even churches that claim to follow this rule don't follow it on the surface or the plain reading. We always read it in context. Even Paul himself, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, same letter, says that here's how women are to pray and here's how women are to prophesy. So when Paul talks about women speaking, he's clearly not talking about all speech because he's already told us women are going to pray and prophesy. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's already given us a list of giftings they can do. So the question is this, what kind of speech is Paul prohibiting? And here's where context is important, because in the passage it's found, Paul already prohibits two other kinds of speaking. Paul says that if someone is going to speak in tongues, but there's no interpretation, let them remain silent. Don't speak in tongues without interpretation because your talking isn't to edify yourself, it's to edify everyone else. If you're speaking in tongues, and he doesn't mean praying privately, he means to the assembly. He actually says, you can speak to the assembly or you can pray to yourself. If you're speaking to the assembly, there has to be interpretation. Secondly, if anyone's going to prophesy, if anyone's going to speak the word of God in the language of the people, and someone else has a word, You are to set down and shut up. Now, that's my paraphrase. But you're not there to dominate the service with your spiritual gift. That's not the point. So in a section where he's prohibiting speaking, he prohibits tongues without interpretation. He prohibits prophecy that doesn't allow other people to speak. He says, and women must remain silent. And you say, well, what kind of speech is he referring to here? And the answer or the clue is in what he gives as the alternative. Let them ask their husbands at home. Now, here's the thing you might not get about the ancient world. And again, part of this is the context of the culture. In the ancient world, when people had lectures, lectures were a time to ask questions. Just like in a class today, people might feel very comfortable to interrupt the professor to ask a question. But have you ever had a student in a class who wouldn't stop asking questions? Have you ever had a student in a class who got so odd with his questions? By the way, I was once in a class, so so this is is my, my, it's a real story. I had a student in a class, I wasn't the professor, I was a student. He would always ask the most bizarre questions that would take the lecture in a wholly different direction. It would be weird. Like we were reading the Gospel of Mark and he got up to ask a question about the Eiffel Tower. I'm not joking. And in his mind, it made some connection. didn't make a connection to anyone else. And then he would keep going on trying to get everyone to understand it. And the professor was faithful every single class. Any questions, any questions, any questions. He'd always try to answer his question. Finally, towards the end of the semester, you could tell the professor was starting to get impatient. And he asked the class, are there any questions? This kid raises his hand, and the professor goes, no! And it scared all of us. 
And then he says to the rest of us, are there any questions? And we're all like, nope, 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 I'm good, we're good. Here's the word in Greek to ask. It's the exact same word used when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus. I have one scholarly friend who says it this way. Maybe rather than translate and ask, we should say interrogate. And so many scholars think what's happening here is this, that in the worship part of the service, people are bringing their own gifting, they're bringing their own. Paul says, okay, you got to do it in a way that edifies everyone. But in the teaching part of the service, you have people, women in particular, who are stopping everything because they're trying to understand, and the interrogation needs to happen elsewhere. Because again, this has to be for everybody. But here's the thing that we sometimes miss. When he says, let them interrogate their husbands at home, what he's also saying is, home is another place we should be receiving Christian instruction. And we have a responsibility to make sure the people that we live with are also caught up to speed. It's not just telling women where they should interrogate. It's telling husbands what they should be doing. And by the way, in this same passage, Or elsewhere, Paul tells of another young man's sincere faith, but then he says this faith that existed in your grandmother and then in your mother and now in you. So it's not just passing the faith in home from male to female, it's also passing it from female to male. The question is, who is it that doesn't know? That's the one that needs to be caught up. If that's what Paul's saying, and the passage is not telling women they can't speak, It's not telling them they can't pray. It's not telling them they can't prophesy. It's not telling them they can't preach. It's simply saying your interrogation can't interrupt the service. There has to be another place for this. Or we come to what is sometimes treated as the killer passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. In this passage, verse 11, Paul tells women that they ought not to teach or have authority over men. Now, there's more to this passage than I can get in today because we only have 10 minutes left, so just bear with me very quickly. The word teach here matters a great deal because in most of 1 Timothy, Paul's actually dealing with the problem of false teaching. He doesn't address directly what the false teaching is. He does say at the very beginning. In fact, Paul begins the letter by jumping right into it. Very rarely in letters, Paul usually spends his time getting to the issue. In 1 Timothy, he says, hey, Timothy, it's Paul. By the way, watch out for this, right? It's like, oh, it starts right away. He says, beware of false teaching, particularly teaching that focuses on speculation that's not a matter of the gospel. Because by focusing on this, you're not actually teaching the gospel. Have you know churches that sometimes get caught up in things that's not about the gospel? And we spend our whole time trying to speculate. Paul says to Timothy, don't don't do that. Don't, Don't let people do that. Don't let people take the church hostage away from the gospel. And then he talks about some other teaching, some that even encourages people to quit marrying. And we don't know exactly what's going on, because this letter is a one-sided conversation. But Paul also deals with another issue related to this, where he says that there's disruption in the services. Before he tells women to be quiet in this verse, he tells men to be quiet in verse 2. And he actually says to them, all of you have got to be quiet. In other words, chill. Men, learn to worship without arguing. Women, you need to be able to learn in quietness as well. Now, here's the thing that a lot of us don't get, because again, it comes down to translation. But this word authority 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, authentane is the only time in the New Testament we ever see this word. Whenever Paul uses another word for authority, like the authority of God, it's exousia, right? That's the word he uses. That just means authority. But Paul, in this one place, uses a word that's only found here, and it's the only time he uses this word. Why? Because the word was negative. It didn't just mean have authority. It meant something more like to dominate or to oppress. In fact, it's actually a rare word in Greek literature, meaning that when Paul uses it, he's really pulling it as an obscure word. And where this word comes from was it was so oppressive, this was a cultural euphemism for the word murder. That you could so dominate someone that you took their life. Now here's the other thing. Paul, in talking about teaching and not having authority, it may not be two things, because in Greek grammar, when two things are put together in this kind of construction, sometimes they mean one thing. Meaning, the translation might not be Women ought not to teach or have authority over men. The translation might be, women ought not to teach in order to dominate men. Meaning Paul's not correcting the misuse of a gender. Paul's actually correcting the misuse of a gift. You don't get to exercise your spiritual gift to get back at others. Here's the thing I'm trying to say. Both translations work. Both of them work. By the way, one scholar has shown some of our earlier translations actually saw this. It's only in the 20th century that we switch back to just authority. This is a known thing, guys. Both translations work. The question is, what theology are you bringing to the text to determine which translation you want to use? Because the words can go either way. I will argue more and more, which is why I changed it. It doesn't make sense to me to not make this word dominate. Because that is what the word means. It's never used for God. It's only used in this way. Here's what I would argue. Why would Paul have to say this? Because it's what he says in other passages. Whenever there is a group in the church that is set free in Christ that has come from a place of oppression, there was always a tendency to want to get back at others. He has to warn this of slaves. He has to warn this of Gentiles. He has to warn this of children. You cannot use your freedom in Christ to now get back at the people who hurt you because that's not what freedom is for. When God gives you a gift, it's not just a right, it's a responsibility. And that responsibility is for the good of the others around you. I don't stand up here and speak because I want to speak. I stand up here and speak because I think it can help. And the point at which my speech doesn't help is the point at which I sit down. Because it's a responsibility to the body that we all share together. By the way, koinonia, fellowship of the Spirit, you know what that means? It means partnership in the Spirit. We all have a sharing of the Spirit as the body of Christ. We're all called to mutual responsibility. Why do I like this translation? Because it fits with the rest of Paul. And this is the last two objections I want to deal with very quickly, and it's simply this. Some people object to what we do with these verses because they say, well, number one, you just want to follow the plain reading of Scripture. What I want to show you is 
Really, the translation goes both ways. They're both the plain reading of Scripture. Other people will say, well, you're just conceding to culture. You're just changing Scripture to match the culture. You're saying we should translate it differently in order to say what we wish it would say. And here's what I want to stress. One, that's a weird thing to say to a Pentecostal. Because we respected women creating denominations before women were even given the right to vote in this country. Why did we recognize women's authority before they even had the right to vote? Because we thought that's what Scripture said. When we saw the authority of women, we were putting Scripture against our culture. It's really weird to blame a Pentecostal for now trying to give in to culture. We've been countercultural before you guys were. And sometimes I want to say for other traditions, no, I think you're reading this because of your culture. This is a cultural concession from you. It's just from an earlier time. We have to come to the question of application. Part of the question of application is, is this teaching local? Is it universal? And I've asked some questions here. I'll just throw them up here. Is what's being affirmed in the passage a reaffirmation of what comes earlier? For instance, is it a New Testament saying that's actually reaffirming what's said in the Old Testament? That's how you know it's universal. Is it something that's being affirmed that's affirmed by other scriptures, like our sexual ethics? That's something that we can say is universal. It's a universal affirmation through the Bible. Is it something that if we take it as universal, it makes the rest of scripture harder to read? Here's why I choose to read these passages this way. Because if I don't, I can't read the rest of the Bible. Here's the thing. The Bible throughout supports the roles of women in ministry. If we go to the Old Testament, we find women engaged in prophecy. We find women engaged in worship leadership. We find women engaged in political leadership. Now, there's good and negative examples to both. I only put up the positive examples. I want to be clear. I, I, I kind of cherry-picked. There's some negative examples I could have put up there of women still in charge. But the truth is, the Bible doesn't say, well, how could a woman do that? Deborah's a judge. How should she be a judge? Well, she's the prophet. How is she a prophet? Well, God gave her a spirit. That's why. No one questions that. And if you look at the three primary offices in the Old Testament, a prophet, priest, and king, that's political leadership, worship leadership, and prophecy. Women fit all those roles. If you go to the New Testament, you find women who are listed as apostles, women who are listed as prophets, women who are listed as church leaders, women who are listed as teachers, women who are listed as deacons, which is a generic word for minister, women who are listed as co-workers, women who are listed as house patrons, which may be the closest we can get to pastor. And if you look at the fivefold ministry of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, and that worker, as some people believe, is a worker in the gospel, then we find women fulfilling all those roles. If you go to the Pentecostal interpretation, the gift of the Spirit follows through women as well as men. What's the danger if we get it wrong? The danger is how we apply this principle to our own culture. Because if I restrict women from speaking authoritatively, from leading... What does that have to do to the rest of our theology? What does that say about women ministers in the church if we restrict their authority to only other women? It doesn't just affect women, it affects men. Imagine a church that doesn't allow women to teach past the sixth grade in Sunday school because then they would have authority over a man. By the way, I've seen that. 
How does that affect the men in the church? How does it affect the boys in the church and the way they understand women, including their own mom? This could be damaging spiritually in a way that we don't appreciate. It doesn't just mean what it says about the church. What does it say about marriage and a relationship with men? I'm about to run over time. Can I do that for a second? Can I do that for a second by saying something that I didn't put in my notes and is kind of scandalous and you're just going to have to go with me? Just recently, this month, an article came out on the web uh, that was on a famous website. I'm not going to say it. They actually removed the article because in 40 hours, so many people made fun of it, they took it down. But it basically argued that sex is a symbol of salvation. And the person writing it, coming from a tradition that doesn't allow women in ministry, basically made the argument that just as women passively receive the sperm of their husbands, so the church passively receives the grace of Christ. And then kind of elaborated on that. And of course, a lot of people are like, huh, that's interesting. And while I don't want to say that that article represents everybody everywhere else, be careful what I'm saying. I'm just giving one example. Can we see how seeing a role of women in ministry that makes women passive in ministry could also impact the way that we see women as passive in a marriage, which now impacts the way that we see women as passive in a bedroom? And seeing this here impacts how we see this everywhere else. How do we understand it in terms of salvation? If women are saved and brought to Christ the same as men, how could they not experience the body of Christ the same as men? Because being saved is being part of the body of Christ. You can't separate those two. What does it say about creation? If we're created in the image of God, male and female, how can maleness be a more accurate reflection of God's image then? Here's what I want to argue. I've done this entire sermon wrong. Rather than spending so much of this sermon on two passages and then trying to look at the other scriptures, I should have started with Genesis. Worked my through what the Bible says about women and then read those two passages in light of that. If I did it that way, this would be a lot easier to follow. Why not begin with Genesis? That argues that male and female are created in the image of God, which means what? We're called to reflect the authority of God together. And the very first verse that mentions women, it mentions them in the context of leadership. Men and women have a shared leadership over creation. Or Galatians 3.28 that tells us our social distinctions and our greater culture don't matter in our relationship with each other in Christ. We're called to be one in Christ. Or Ephesians 5.21 that when it talks about marriage, it begins by saying, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. What if we have a theology of women and men that begins with shared leadership in creation, shared unity in salvation, and shared submission in relationship? Then we read those passages in light of that. And what could Paul, who also has this theology, mean when he says this? At the end of the day for us, it really just comes down to this. We believe in the right of God to call whomever he will. It's not just man's right or woman's right, it's God's right. Though the way we talk about the right of God is to talk about the authority of God. It's the principle in Pentecostalism that God does not restrict his gifts to a gender because the Bible doesn't, but rather the Bible warns us to use the gifts well and not misuse them over others. One way of misusing a gift, however is to not use it at all.
And if you have been gifted by the Spirit of God and you're not using that, that's disobedience. So now here's my big three. I'm going to end three points, and then we're just going to pray. Number one, you may believe what I've said. You may think to yourself, oh, my goodness, Dr. Tennyson's a heretic. Here's what I ask you to do. Number one, study the issue yourself. Just study the issue yourself. I'm going to give you five sources very quickly. If you're saying, I want to hear the other side of this, there's a great book called Two Views of Women in Ministry. Two Views. It's the great scholars on both sides who argue with each other. There's a great book called Discovering Biblical Equality, which actually goes over every passage on women in Scripture and ways that we can interpret this. There's a great book on God's women, written by one of the scholars we wanted to bring to campus. And Christy, I still want us to bring her to campus, who talks about this issue through Scripture. There's a great book called God Forgive Us for Being Women that addresses specifically the assemblies of God and the ways we have fallen short. And there's a book that just came out last week that I just started reading, but I love it already. N.J. Gupta, Tell Her Story, which takes the issue of women in ministry and puts it in the larger context of what is Paul's theology of ministry. And how do we understand that? I would encourage you, read these. Build your library. That's number one. Number two, obey the Spirit. However the Spirit has determined your gifting, obey. Listen, receive whatever gifts. And then number three, support each other. Talking about women in ministry is not a women's issue. It's not a men's issue. It is a kingdom of God issue. And we all have a stake in this. If women are called and gifted and we don't allow that gift, we've lost 50% of our workforce. And here's the thing where it should affect you men. That means 50% of your church is not able to give you the gifts that God wants you to receive from them. A lack of women in ministry hurts all of us. It is a kingdom of God issue. I'm going to close quickly in prayer, and then I think Kaylee is going to come up and just talk about the rest of this week. Lord, I want to thank you for our time together. God, I thank you that you call us, and that is all a matter of your grace. We are here because of you. We are empowered because of you. We do everything that we do because of you. Help us to see our calling in light of you. And no matter what resistance we may feel from others, even others in the church, help us to keep our eyes on you and to be the church and to be the people and to be the ministers in and outside the church that you call us to be for your glory and for the good of all your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.